0: Hello everybody, welcome to the latest edition of Volley, I'm Carolyn April, and as always looking for my good friend Seth, Seth Robinson, out there.
1: I'm here, I'm freezing.
0: Hey, you're freezing?
1: Freezing. It's like, uh, I think this At morning it was like negative four when the kids went to school, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's getting up to like eight sometime today, but the uh, the office isn't quite as warm and toasty as you'd like it to be when it's that cold outside, so.
0: Yeah, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, we had that um, ridiculously frigid weather over the in the beginning of this week. It was single digits. In fact, they started school late one of the days just because not my daughter who drives, but younger kids who wait out at the bus stop. They, you know, it's seven o'clock in the morning. It was like minus four, so they weren't going to let them sit at stand out there waiting for their bus. So they waited till it got to be a balmy, you know, five degrees, and then then they could come to school. But uh, but now the weather turned and it's a little bit warmer today. So. Crazy winter.
1: Yeah, we're actually – we're going to get colder from here. Like next week on, on Wednesday, the high is supposed to be – the last I saw was negative 10. So there's yeah. not going to be school that day. There's there's no
0: oh, way. I hope that doesn't come this way east. Mm. I've had enough of that kind of weather. No fun, no fun. What but else is going all, on? Oh, Let's see. The, um, my Patriots made the Super Bowl again, so, you know.
1: Yeah, that's not news. I mean, <laughs> I <laughs> congratulations and everything, but, uh,
0: uh, I think we, I think we've done this a few times on volley. Yeah. I think last year, the year before, if I recall. Okay. So this is three, this is three years in a row. Yeah. It's kind of fun. Yeah. If you live around here. Yeah. I yeah. absorb all the hate from everybody on the outside. It's fine. Yeah. That's I bad. don't
1: have, I don't have any, any hate. I mean, I, uh, I, I like that team pretty well and I, I respect the hell out of them. Right. But, um, you know, I, I wouldn't mind seeing something different. I was pulling for Rams Chiefs, so we got halfway there. But I don't know if the Rams are I don't know if the Rams are ready for this moment, so
0: Well it's sort of mind boggling when you think about it. The Rams head coach is thirty three. Yeah. He just turned thirty three. So just, just sit with that for a few minutes, you know, given that Tom Brady's forty one and <laughs> the coach of the other team is thirty three. Um it's uh, it's kind of mind-boggling. So, yeah, we'll see. I don't know a heck of a lot about the Rams, to be honest, because uh, I didn't see them much this year, and we didn't play them, and they're in the other conference. Some conference teams I do – other conference teams I do keep up with, but not them. So they're kind of a mystery to me. So it'll be interesting to watch Yeah, the they
1: were – I mean, they were going like gangbusters for the first half of the season. I mean, they just looked like a machine, and then they – slowed down a little bit and you know and anyone that watched the game Sunday you know they kind of barely made it past the Saints so it doesn't it definitely doesn't seem like they're firing on all cylinders you know maybe they get it together
0: we'll see yeah we will see I'm looking forward to it next week it'll be fun so
1: there were a few articles this week uh, that you and I have taken a look at, and there's kind of a common thread that runs through them. And, and we've touched on this thread in Volley before, and it's going to be in the uh, Outlook that gets published next week. But this, this idea of the unintended consequences of, of technology, especially since we're seeing technology at scale, and I, you know, I think in these articles this week, we see some ways in which those unintended consequences are manifesting. And then you begin to think about how are you locked into that technology. And if you're experiencing some of these you know, unintended consequences or things that might be changing from underneath you, what can you do about it? So the, the first one uh, was an article that you shared with me, um, kind of following up on some incidents that happened in Washington over the weekend. And we don't really want to get into the incidents too much, I don't think. But the idea was, especially for journalists – Twitter has become kind of a danger zone, right? Like, um, I, I would love to hear you kind of describe the, some of the basic tenets of journalism and how they are really difficult to make happen on Twitter.
0: Yeah, I mean, Twitter, now, when I was a journalist, it wasn't that long ago, but honestly, it, it, you know, I was writing, predating the whole Twitter phenomenon, When it, you know, and and it, it really has kind of messed up journalism, um, to, if you want to do journalism right. Um, it has become, you know, the Internet itself has completely, uh, you know, turned journalism on its ear. Uh, you know, the, the fast pace with which um, you have to publish um, the first one out there with any shred of news, um, whether it's fact-based or not, uh, has been something that the journalism world has been dealing with ever since the Internet really blew up. Um, but uh, Twitter has made that even even, even more so. And I think one of the takeaways from the piece that was written by Farhood Manju, who, who was the Slate, Slate's technology writer, and he's, he's quite good, was that... What Twitter has effectively done in journalism is taken us, moved us away from making sure that we were being fact-based in reporting the news. And I use that word reporting um, very deliberately. So you are you are telling what is happening, um, which is what journalism is supposed to be, to moving into the area of opinion. And whether or not you actually, as a journalist, express a written opinion on Twitter or you're simply sharing a clip of video, as was the case this week, or you're sharing a still shot photo, or whatever it is um, that uh, has some implication or inference in it that can be drawn by the the viewer or the reader. Uh, you may not actually put your two cents in but what you are conveying something without any context and I think that that's one of the biggest issues uh, with Twitter today and it's what got a lot of journalists into trouble and and you know I I will say that I'm guilty I I read the first you know round of things that were popping up on social media about this incident in DC with the kids from Covington and the Native Americans and and I think that this is a pretty widespread story that people are aware of so we don't have to get into all the details but suffice to say it was a big mess initial reporting uh leaned one in one direction then further if you you drilled down on it and went into more context with what actually happened you found that there was a lot more nuance and a lot more bad actors and a lot more good actors and and so initial in the rush to be first uh many journalists made you know quite huge errors on, on Twitter and then had to retract them. And, you know, I will give props to many journalists out there who have a tendency to not want to ever say when they made a mistake. Many this week, and, and, and they the, you know, they did have their tail between their legs. Um, and I think that this is a problem. You know, Fahud in his article said he's, he's really trying to disengage from Twitter. What he once thought and embraced as one of the greatest tools for journalists to be able to use when it first came out, and I believe then it was, has now devolved into something that is – is not is not necessarily a positive. And he's trying as a journalist to divorce himself as much as possible, at least for, on a professional level, maybe not on a personal level, um, and finding it difficult. And I think that's what we're trying to talk about today, that you know you can't, sometimes the whole notion of um, cutting the cord and disconnecting from these things isn't quite as simple as it sounds like on paper, where you can just say, well, I'm just not doing Twitter anymore. Well, if you're a professional journalist and you decide to opt out, that could be a problem for your career. Uh, And so, you know, I really sympathize with these guys and figuring out how best to manage and use Twitter. And I get it. I I know I'm going long winded here a little bit. But, you know, the other big part of the problem is this isn't Twitter isn't a journalists' network, social network. It's everybody's social network. So everybody on the planet thinks that they're reporting the news. And that has become a huge problem ever since the Internet and blogging took hold is anyone who can type on a keyboard thinks that they know what they're talking about and fancies themselves professional journalists. And that's another problem.
1: Yeah, there, there's a couple things that you mentioned in there that I wanted to come back to. You know, the the first one is, I had been thinking about this as well, when you kind of mentioned that you wanted to talk about how Twitter has been shaping journalism or, or you know, why there's a threat there is, I, I think that with journalism, one part of it has always been wanting to report the news in a very timely fashion. So we want to tell you what's happening now, but but now that we're able to make it so immediate, when you say this is happening in this instant, and you're you're not able to take a minute and figure out the entire context, even if all you do is say this is happening, and if you haven't given it the time to build the context, you are playing into an environment where opinions are going to form.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: and, and so, even if they're trying to not, they're not, you know, uh, purposefully putting opinions into what they might be writing or tweeting, the the immediacy of it drives opinions to be formed um, and and there's there's no chance for, for context and, and again, I don't know exactly what they do about this because you know the consumers are sort of demanding that immediacy um, but we've we've lost the ability or we've lost some ability to wait and figure out the context and and allow that to be the entire story that gets reported. Uh, the the other part of it, <laughs> to me, especially on this one and on a few other things that I've seen is why is this even news? Just because something is happening, a- at a high level, if you describe the thing that's happening, it doesn't seem all that newsworthy, right? And uh, I, I read another great article about the fact that it creates outrage. Uh, and, and I think that there, there's a lot of media today that, their their goal seems to be to fuel the fires of outrage rather than reporting something that actually has some substance.
0: Agreed, and you know to go to the back to the basic tenets of journalism. It's you know it's who, what, when, where, why, what happened, and it needs to have some significance. And you're right. This this event that happened, uh, if if we didn't, you know the people who were there do not all have cell phones, and they're uploading videos to YouTube and wherever else, Twitter, et cetera. Um, which sparked outrage because everyone is polarized in this country right now, and that's part of the problem. So, uh, but but if you dissect it and you think about it, it's like, was this a news story? What exactly happened here that needed to be disseminated across the country? Really nothing. Um, it was, you know, these are people protesting. There are protests you could, you know, probably dial up a protest in your state, you know, any weekend that you want to, and they're going on left and right. They don't. That doesn't make them news. Uh, So you're right. I think this whole notion of the political nature and the polarization of the country and then what and then journalists deciding what is outrageous or worse yet is journalists following average citizens who decide this is outrageous. I'm going to put this on Twitter and then the journalist world has almost no choice but to weigh in in some way.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, really hard to say what the solution, you know, is on this. And that's what we'll we'll, we'll talk about this kind of at the end of, of what does this mean when, when you're stuck in some of these systems. But um, there, there are definitely some issues. And I think a lot of the responsibility falls on consumers, uh, you know, for what am I going to give my attention to? How am I going to uh, engage or not, you know, with the things that I'm seeing? Um, how am I going to maybe be patient and wait for some context so th- I think there's a lot of responsibility there.
0: All of our attention spans have gotten so short. I think because of technology, um, that you know, waiting it out to see the context or watch the entire 50 minutes of the video, which was the uh, what was was put out there later about the incident that happened this week, would be unheard of for a lot of people. It's like, what? No, I'm i not. I can't sit and watch 50 minutes of this. Uh, right. I'm going to get this. So I think uh, I think we 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 all suffer from um, much much shortened attention spans, which is not necessarily a good thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's, there's probably all kinds of angles that we could continue to dig into on this one, but I think that kind of sums it up pretty well. And and the second article then is, is a bit of a different take. Um, it came from Casey Johnston at the outline, uh, and you know, the title of the article is why is my Gmail suddenly full? Uh, and, and so Google, the way they manage their storage is if you're using Google services, like Gmail or photos or drive, then there are certain things that would count against the free storage that they give you, uh, and then beyond that you would you would want to pay and And so what she ran into, and then it sounded like you know other people kind of chimed in and they were starting to see the same thing is Google was reaching out and saying, "Hey, you're right up against your limit of free storage if you you can pay us and and we'll give you some more storage, or we're going to have to start like shutting some things down." And one of the interesting parts of her article was it was really hard for her to figure out where her storage was, what was taking up so much space. She, she seemed to think that it was uh, attachments in email, but even then she couldn't quite find all of these attachments that were allegedly taking up so much space. So th- she had some difficulty in that. Uh, and, and again, tying into the just the theme of... Unintended consequences, and, and what happens is, you know, you're using Gmail. You think it's free. You think it's great. You've given everyone in the world your Gmail address, and all of a sudden, you know, your your storage is full, and you either have to take the time and figure out, you know, how to how to get rid of it, or you have to you have to pay. Um, a, a more extreme example might be if Google all of a sudden said, you know what? There's no free storage anymore. No free services. We're we're just going to start charging you. Uh, they, you know, they could do that. Uh, I'm sure that there would be, you know, an outcry, and they would probably lose some customers. But you, you can imagine that they would have done that calculus, right, and figured out, yeah, you know, we don't think we're going to lose all that many people, so we're going to do this. So all of us have kind of bought into these free services or, or gotten um, entrenched in these free services, and at any moment something could change on us, and and that would, you know, either that would change the dynamics on uh, and, and and the economics. So. You have, you have Gmail, right, and I, I think you and I, neither one of us, are really up against these limits.
0: Yeah, I have Gmail. I don't, I mean, I'm not a big Gmail user. Uh, it's there. It's my personal email. Um, it collects more spam than anything that, that's truly meaningful for me, but I'm sort of an outlier. I'm a weirdo when it comes to a lot of technology. I don't, so I don't have folders built and I'm not using a lot of storage for anything. But the whole sort of beat-and-switch nature of, of, of some of these companies' tactics, you know, it, 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 does, it does trap people. Um, it, it, it's almost like the old opt-out or opt-in type clauses that are in a lot of um, things that you can join up or sign up for online. And unless you you know specifically opt out of something, it's going to start charging you after your free month is over for something that you signed up for as, on a trial basis. Um, and they just make it, you know, all of these little clauses and things that make it difficult for you to extract yourself from something um, that you maybe wanted to try initially or that you thought was going to be free in perpetuity and then is not free like Google um, and Gmail. So um, it, it, it's a bit insidious. And, and, it, and, it, and depending on how locked in you are and how committed you are to a particular platform, um, it sounds like this woman was using Gmail for quite a bit. And, and I know some people do. You know, you then you have to weigh the cost benefit for yourself. It's like, OK, is it worth it for me to try to migrate everything that I've got going on over here to something else, another platform that's free? No, not knowing that, you know, two weeks later, that same platform could go the way of Google, you know, and start charging for everything. So, um, you know, the, the leverage is definitely with the tech companies. Let's just put it that way.
1: Yeah. And, and the, the leverage is, is maybe even more than a lot of people assume. And I think people assume that it's enormous. So the, the last article, and we'll provide the links to all of these in the show notes, is from Kashmir Hill from Gizmodo. And she's writing a series right now on what it would look like to try to eliminate any of the big five tech companies from day-to-day life. So that would be Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Apple. The first one that she did is Amazon. Uh, and, and she really went all the way on it, not just not ordering from the website anymore or not viewing prime video, but trying to not view sites that were hosted on Amazon web services. Mm-hmm. She set up a VPN and all this and you know the, the basic conclusion is it's impossible.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> and, and maybe you wouldn't feel like you needed to go quite as far as, as she did you know in terms of blocking the websites. But again, even if it's gmail or even if you're on apple's ecosystem with your devices that that cost, especially over an amount of time, is enormous uh, and and it's you know really really challenging to get out of it and a lot of people you know might not even know how to get out of it so so we've got you know the situation of All of these free services that have kind of lured us in with compelling features or obviously incredibly low price points and definitely seem to provide benefit. And then the longer you're in it um, and, and the more the rules might change, you find that there are some problems. But then when you begin to consider your options, it's really, really difficult to leave. And so I think that that environment is, again, one that consumers should be highly aware of but also probably one that creates some opportunity especially if you translate this to an enterprise level and we've talked about things like vendor lock in with cloud before and and that notion will only expand you know any any company could get so locked into a certain technology that if the terms begin changing on them, uh, they're really painted into a corner. And so then there's opportunity there to help companies migrate and get out of things and, and, and manage themselves and, and kind of take ownership of their data a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I was fascinated by this 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 woman's attempt at getting away from Amazon. Uh, frankly, I hadn't thought of all of the the. the downstream implications of being connected to AWS and all of the things that she tried to um, disengage from, you know, even saying that, uh, you know, she couldn't access Netflix when she decided to, to, to break with Amazon. Some, even though Netflix is Amazon's, you know, major competitor in streaming video, uh, they host on AWS. So there goes Netflix, even though you're trying to uh, eliminate Amazon from your life. So I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly insidious, when you think about it, or it makes me think of the uh, Eagles Hotel California a little bit, you know, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave sort of thing. (laughs) And that's how it seems to be today. Um, You might be able to eventually leave, but it's going to be a massive headache for you to to do so. And like I said earlier, it becomes this major cost benefit analysis that most people today don't have the time to take to, to go through.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I think there's opportunity there for, you know, IT professionals or solution providers to understand what migration would look like. You know, kind of always have that exit strategy, have it planned out, you know, understand what your trigger point might be or if the terms are changing, you know, too much, you know, at what point does the cost of staying outweigh the cost of leaving? And then you can execute that strategy. I I think with the way that technology is integrated today and the way that all of us are integrated into some of these technology platforms, that's just a really good thing to be aware of and, and maybe even build a practice around
0: definitely it's one of the things that we recommend when we talk to managed services providers about how to best set up their their companies is to make sure and to end users who are going to work with them is to make sure that these sorts of um, details are worked out you know very specifically in a service level agreement you know what is the exit strategy if things are not going right or if the terms and conditions are changing that you know for the end customer that they're no longer satisfactory and they don't want to be involved with that provider anymore how to get out and how to get out most easily and it behooves the msp to make it to make it easy for that end customer to migrate as well um, because you know it, it really comes down to them having a good reputation in the marketplace and if they, they build a reputation as somebody who um, creates incredible headaches and lock-in for their customers who might want to leave um, that's gonna that's gonna hurt them trying to drum up new business in the future mm-hmm there was one other one, and I, we won't talk about it, but I saw something on Wired right before we went on to record here today that I think also fits into this mold. So we might want to um, want to uh, put that link into that one as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely include the links. And you know, I think this is a topic that we'll be keeping an eye on because I, I think when you look at these things, you, you really begin to feel that – we're not completely at a stable situation with a lot of this technology. I I would say maybe five years ago, there was sort of this impression that, you know, all of these huge platforms are here to stay. You know, there's no one that's going to come and disrupt these things. But I I think some of the, the things that we're starting to see more and more suggest that some of these patterns aren't completely sustainable. And again, maybe the platforms don't completely go away, but the role that they play or the way that people interact with them Seems bound to change, uh, and and so rather than feeling like well this is the way it's going to be, uh, it sort of feels like this is maybe the uh, the beginning of a new stage where you know all these things have been put in place, and now we have to really figure out how to deal with them.
0: Yeah, we always see. I mean, there are always cycles of um, who's more in control than the other, and and there will be. I I assume that the, there's always periods of consumer backlash. Um, where the consumer then you know, gets the upper hand over uh, the provider. And I think that, um, you know, to, to, to throw up our hands today and say, well, this is just the way it is. These giant providers, you know, they, they hold all the keys to the castle or whatever and that's just it, um, is not necessarily going to be the way it's going to be in two years or five years or ten years. We just don't know.
1: Right. All right, my friend. Well, uh, good discussion today. I. Uh Enjoyed hearing your opinions on especially the journalism stuff. I know you uh, you know a lot more about that than I do. So it was good talking to you.
0: Absolutely, as always. So um, have a good week. And uh, I guess I won't talk to you until after the Super Bowl. So make sure you're rooting for the Patriots, please. I will make a note of it. Just at least tell me you are. That's all <laughs> you have to do. <laughs> I am. All right. I'll take it.
1: All right. We'll take it easy.
0: All Bye-bye.